Thanks for tuning in to our bonus episode preview. This is just a short sample of this week's exclusive Patreon episode. You can hear the episode in its entirety by becoming a member at patreon.com slash indoctrination, where you'll gain access to all of our exclusive episodes and merchandise. It is my pleasure to have Jeremy Sherman back on the show. Uh, it's another by popular demand kind of interview because your episode got so much interest and so much reaction where people were saying, yes, you know, he's sort of saying it as we're thinking it and looking at it sociologically, looking at it psychologically. So it's wonderful to have you back. It's a delight to be back. What fun. Yeah, good, good. I was really looking forward to today. And as we're recording this, the hearings are going on. And with my schedule, I've been able to watch a bit, but not all. But I find it also interesting how truth tellers are treated and what that means about a society or about where a society is. I think the litmus test is how the truth tellers are treated. And I wanted to be able to talk about that and then also something else. But is it okay if we start there? Yeah, happy to start there. I would complement it with its other half, which is why people end up not telling the truth even to themselves so deep into a bad game. And I guess I'm under the influence of a book I've been reading this last uh, week, which is called Why We Did It by Tim Miller, which is about someone who is truth-telling, but late in the game, he was a Trump insider, a deep Trump insider, who was happened to also be homosexual. And so cognitive dissonance was intense for him. And this is, I've probably read 25 books on the Trump cult and its politics and the psychology. And this one's a marvel because it's a blunt and ruthless self-analysis of how he got into it so deep and how his colleagues did. And you mentioned that that I come at this from a sociological and a psychological perspective. That's true. But I also come at it from a, an evolutionary perspective. Um, that is, my, my biggest zoom out is to the origins of life. I've been working, I'm a close collaborator with a Harvard-Berkeley neuroscientist, biological anthropologist, who's, and together we've been working for 25 years on explaining the origins of life. And one of the things we have to explain is individuality, how you end up with individuals and what an individual has to do in order to stay an individual. And that would include preventing infection and avoid and preventing defection, which is to your point. So I do not think of a cult as a super organism, though it's got a lot of the qualities in common with it. And preventing defection would be one of those qualities. That is, if you're an insider, they're going to have to, they, they make it very hard for you to step outside. That's kind of the point. That's the heart of cultishness is all sorts of social censure. You have fallen from grace if you ever exit. And obviously, one of the, the heart of this is something that Gregory Bateson defined as double binds, which I think of as we decide who goes to heaven and hell. And if you challenge us on our decisions, you're going to hell. That would be a version of that as well. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the evolutionary perspective, I want to make sure to get into that. I think about this idea of preventing defection. People will often say to me, I stayed in my group, whatever it was for much longer because of the community. 
because I sort of stopped believing in the teachings at some point, or I could see that the leader was, you know, fallible, but I really liked the connection and I, I needed it. And I had also still, I'd been convinced that the world outside wasn't a place for me anymore, or that my family and friends were not going to accept me back. And so I, I had to stay connected. And I think also this idea with defection that, that, you know, it's so fear-based in so many of these groups because you're cut off, because you're disconnected from, because you're called like in Scientology and SP, a suppressive person, or in other groups, an apostate or worldly or whatever it is, like there, there's a lot of name calling with defection. I think people will try to prevent that from happening and being seen that way because people care so much about their reputation. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge and important new fascination for me. And some of this actually comes out of some anthropology I've been reading. Uh, Richard Wrangham is, a, I think he's at Yale, anthropologist, uh, but also primarily a primatologist. Anyway, he wrote a book recently called The Goodness Paradox, which is trying to explain why humans are so surprisingly good and bad in terms of their belligerence, but also their kindness. And one of the arguments, been around for a while, but it's getting more and more evidence, is that Three million years of our history was small tribes that exiled or ostracized the arrogant, the very arrogant or the, the, the greedy or the indulgent. And as a result, we've actually bred out of ourselves some of that kind of belligerent hostility. At the same time, all of this stuff is double-edged. Everything I work with is double-edged. So the, at the same time, that ability to ostracize is what we call these days uh, I would say pejoratively, but also indiscriminately, cancel culture. It, if we call it pejoratively, that I mean, I think canceling is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking, we're talking about three million years of cancel culture, and God bless it, it's made us a tamer creature than we would otherwise be. But if you're talking about the the other the other side of this, I just wrote an article last night about human neediness at all scales, it's a huge problem. Our fear of exile, our fear of ostracization, fear of shame, fear of humiliation, public humiliation. Think of how many people have dreams about showing up naked someplace. It's huge in us. I think it'll be the death of us if we if we can't figure out a way to deal with it. It shows up at a very personal level that is it's certainly the death of a lot of conversations. You can't have a conversation with someone who is busy trying to prove that they should not be ostracized, busy trying to prove that they that they are a good person. I, I've coined the term recently, the tuck and duck strategy, moral strategy, which is the anxious strategy where if a word comes up that sounds positive, you have to tuck yourself under it. You have to turn the conversation to why you fit that positive sounding thing. Never mind what the thing is. If it sounds good, I've got to claim that I have it. And you have to duck any pejorative terms. So if it, if it sounds bad, you've got to pause the conversation. And turn the conversation to why you don't have that quality. There's a term in biology, stigmergy, for a kind of go-with-the-flow behavior that we see, for example, in flocking birds or in ant migration or in slime molds, molds or fungi when they come together into fruiting bodies. And it's basically you're following the each, each individual, the bird or the ant or the slime mold uh, individual, is following very simple rules. It's basically like playing getting warmer, getting colder. But if they all are doing that by the simple rule, they end up with this coalescing. So I've been very interested in moral stigmergy, which is 
you get a positive sounding word in your local culture and everybody just draws towards it. Never mind what the word means. It doesn't matter. All that matters is if it sounds good, I'm it. If it sounds bad, I'm not. And I think that that very simple thing is what we often mistake for moral thinking. And it's not, it's not thinking at all. It's just, you follow the scent. That's so interesting. I think about certain terms and, and this is not for me to make a blanket statement that no one is this or that this is evil in any way, but terms like empath. So a lot of people will call themselves empaths. And I, I think that they know about themselves to a certain degree that that's going to engender a warm feeling. Right. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good people. A torturer has to be powerfully empathic in order to understand how to cause someone the greatest pain. That takes extraordinary depth of empathy. You have to know what the other person is feeling. It's very different from sympathy or charity, needless to say. But you have to be able to put yourself in the victim's shoes if you really want to torture that victim. (laughs) Like I said, everything's double-edged from me. The things that are interesting to me are these things that cut both ways. What's a virtue in one situation is a vice in a different one. I find that endlessly fascinating. Right. I mean, even the term sinner. Okay. So for a lot of people, when they're called sinners, it's because they're having independent thinking because they're going against the grain, but um, they're called something negative and pooled in that way. Some people see it as a badge of honor and some people see it as a heaviness of shame, but it's the same term. Right. Well, so so you'll get these cultural shifts and they're often manufactured. So there's a whole rhetorical move where you say, well, if I'm a sinner, then I'm proud to be one. This is what happened with the N-word. You flip a, pos- a positive negative or a negative positive. So that's part of how you get these cultural shifts. It's like if you imagine the migrating ants moving in one direction, and then there's a branching off in another direction, and then it continues and the flow gets bigger and bigger until it becomes a badge of honor. So sinner or heretic are interesting words. Let me take heretic because it means someone who is open-minded. That during the Middle Ages was not an acceptable thing to be. That was considered bad. So open-minded equals bad. Now notice how that's completely flipped to where if you ever admit that you are closed-minded, I'm devoutly closed-minded and open-minded. My goal is not to be open-minded or closed-minded. I'm trying to be open to the right things and not the wrong things. I want to keep an open mind, but I don't want my brains to spill out. Okay, so but but open-minded has been has become a virtue term, and notice how it gets used in certain cultures. In other cultures, it's not. But in in our culture right now, if you're not open to my suggestion, then I close-mindedly determine that you are close-minded. Nobody's completely open-minded. It would be stupid to be. I mean, your brains would spill out, right? But sinner, in a way, sinner is a generic term. It's like bad. Now, we correlate it with certain things, so it certainly comes up in the theological doctrine where it's associated with certain behaviors. But my point, and this comes from that origins of life research, is that good and bad are real. They are real. Things matter to us, but what's good and what's bad is open to debate. 